welcome everybody to the fourth episode of the Dreamer Diary podcast. This is Chris coming to you in 2022. I hope everybody had a great holiday season, a wonderful Christmas if that's what you celebrate, and a an even better New Year's. Uh, obviously, last year was kind of tumultuous for many of us, seeing the effects of COVID still being kind of uh, prevalent in our lives, and seeing you know the the effects of that. Definitely 2020 was probably the worst year many of us have experienced. 2021 for many of us was hopefully a better year than 2020. So hopefully 2022 is even better than both of the previous years. Uh, So please do what you must to keep yourselves happy, healthy, and sane as we don't know that um, when this pandemic is going to end. Hopefully it ends sooner rather than later. I would love to say that, you know, in 2022, this isn't something that we have to be concerned about. So then we can return to somewhat of a normalcy, uh, um, especially as it pertains to kind of our individual goals, life ambitions, and anything else that we're kind of just thinking in our minds as to what we want to do. It's not easy to try to plan for the future when the future is so uncertain. And definitely, I think many of us, if not all of us, are still trying to figure out how do we navigate our lives in this really weird time? How how do we prepare and make those choices that are going to keep us headed towards the path that we want for ourselves and for our families. And so uh, I don't have the answers to when that will happen, but I hope that this podcast, especially today's podcast, can provide a different angle um, to how to overcome challenging circumstances in life. As I said previously, the scope of this podcast is to provide just a different angle, a different talking point perspective on what it is to be an American, specifically an undocumented American um, because I think that is something that is is true for many people. And as it pertains to kind of the undocumented experience, uh, especially if you're, you know, of Hispanic, Mexican, Latino origins, uh, I mean, it doesn't even have to be, you know, a Hispanic origin uh, idea or perspective. But one thing that I think is very relevant for many of us is is the concept of religion, you know, having that belief, that faith. That, that understanding that there is a higher power that exists that we as individuals, you know, are trying our best to tap into, to connect, to prepare for a better life. And today's podcast is going to f- uh, center, it's going to feature on a couple of those, those elements. Uh, the title of today's podcast is called Torn Between Faith and Shadows. And I think for me, this is um, something that I am very intrigued about as it pertains to my journey. I never thought that that my journey in life would take me to um, take me down the routes that it has. Uh, it hasn't been easy. It's been tough. It's been challenging, especially as I try to navigate what it was to be undocumented and then becoming a citizen and then uh, mixing that with my belief system. So today's podcast is going to feature all these things. So why don't we go ahead and get started? So I wanted to discuss um, this subject that I said for me is very complicated, which is faith and being undocumented. And so what I mean by, you know, this being a complicated issue is that growing when, when you grow up undocumented, um, either it's because of your own choosing or because, you know, you were brought as a child and, you know, that's the label that you have to overcome. <clears throat> um Sometimes those choices to to come to the United States are made by loved ones, uh, family members and stuff like that. And one of the things that I realized was when you're undocumented 
there is this thing that happens, especially if you're coming from a religious household, is, is that the undocumented exper experience is kind of interesting um, when you can compare that to religion and faith. So what I mean by that is that religion is interesting as an undocumented person because when you don't have papers, when you're not legal, and you live your whole life existing without existing, you start to question the higher power, uh, especially if that's something that you've been taught your entire life to believe in. And I think many of my fellow dreamers will understand what I'm talking about. It is kind of existing to go to school. It is existing to be, you know, to take care of the things at home. It is existing to babysit uh, siblings if there are siblings for the goal of one day becoming legal and, and then doing what you want to do and becoming what you want to become. We hope for the day when a law is going to get passed that will open those sealed doors of citizenship. So we cling on to this belief system of faith, hope, and an aspiration for a better life. But why? Why do we hold on to these beliefs? And that is a question that I, was, that I often think about. And so I think that most do so because it happened once before. And so for those of you that are familiar with the immigration history of this country, <clears throat> especially within the last, I would say, 40, 50 years, um, you'll remember this specific event. Um, but if not, let me just kind of provide some brief context into uh, when this happened once before. So in 1986, there was something that was called the Immigration Reform and Control Act. Many refer to it as IRCA, um, the IRCA Act of 1986, um, however you want to classify it, you know, that's what it was. And basically, it was um, a piece of legislation uh, enacted by the Reagan administration that was a form of amnesty. Uh, if you basically it said if you came undocumentedly, illegally, however you want to classify it, and um, you met the qualifications as established by the legislation, that your unlawful entry was uh, forgiven and that there was a pathway to citizenship. So for many, that was how they were able to <clears throat> adjust their status. And so w within the, the undocumented community, there's this kind of belief system or this mantra that um, that undocumented immigrants believe that this, this can happen again, that this will happen again. So many of us, we attend our religious services and fervently ask God to grant our families and us individually the opportunity to become legal and to live a better life um, because it would happen once before and so for many of us who had family members that took advantage of that, we saw the benefits that it provided to them. And so we believe that it could happen to us. But unfortunately for many, this dream goes unfulfilled. There are people who came in the 90s, um, such as in my case, who you know are going into their, th their you know 30 years of being undocumented. And what's an interesting perspective, at least for me anyways, is when you think about how old... Um, for example, my parents would have been when they came in the 90s. You know, they were in their early teens. You know, they were in their mid to late teens, if not early 20s. And so to be living in the United States for over 30 years undocumented means that they've lived in the United States longer than they ever lived in their home country of birth. And that's a really interesting perspective because, you know, we, I think, failed to consider these individuals as being a, an important piece of the American system, the American economic system. But when we consider the fact that these people have been buying into our, our 
our structure for 30 years and then they still continue to not benefit in any way, shape, or form, um, at least from a larger scale of, of benefit, it, it kind of speaks to the reality of the fact that there is a lot left to do. And, you know, to consider that these people are, in, you, know, if, you know, heading into their 50s and 60s who aspire to one day own a home, to one day open their own business legally and stuff like that. The clock is ticking, and as time passes by, their hopes of being able to benefit from being able to get citizenship or legalization or, or whatever dwindles. And so I think about, you know, the case of my parents where if they were to take advantage of a immigration reform that gets passed, let's say, next month, and it takes them a year to actually get some type of legal paperwork or documentation, you know, and my parents decide to buy a house in response, you know, they'll probably qualify for a 30 year and they're in their fifties. So what you're saying is that if we pass legislation today that benefits the 11 million or so undocumented immigrants, especially the older generation ones, their hopes of buying a, a, a home will never go fulfilled because they're, what you're saying is that they'll finish paying off their homes in their 80s and in their 90s, and I can't—I I don't know any individual in their 80s or 90s who's going to still be working a full-time job, um, especially if it's a hard laborist job, to pay off their house. And so I think that this notion of Americanism, this idea of the American dream, this hope for a legal pathway to citizenship for for those older generation undocumented individuals. Um, kind of goes out the window when you consider the fact that how are they going to benefit? You know, the, the, the things that you would benefit when you become a citizen early on in life um, kind of go out the window, especially for those people. And so these are some of the things that I think about as I kind of ponder this notion of Americanism, the American dream, the undocumented experience, the DACA uh, recipients and so forth. <clears throat> because again, it goes back into this notion of faith, right? This belief that one day it's going to happen again. And so for many Hispanic communities, Latino communities, Mexican communities, uh, even Asian communities, African uh, communities, um, who do have individuals who are of undocumented background um, and are part of a religious system, you know, they have a, this belief of, um, of religion, this idea of deity, that connects them, especially their identity, to to who they are. Um, because for many of them, being connected to whatever religion they're a part of unites them as an immigrant here to their families back home, wherever that home is. It is what connects the family over there to their existence over here. So you see, in my particular case, you know, um, I think I mentioned in a previous podcast that uh, I'm currently a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Most people know them as the Mormons, the LDS. Um, <laughs> there's all sorts of different labels, uh, and I'll let you kind of choose the one that, that you're more familiar with. Um, you know, for me, my family didn't always grow up in this faith. We were previously Catholic, and so uh, for me, there's this kind of idea, this, this belief system that is kind of uh, representative of both aspects of 
of my life, right? Both aspects of my religious upbringing. <clears throat> and the, the, this, the direction of this podcast isn't to necessarily thrash any, any religion or faith or anything like that. I, that. I hope that this comes clear, that that is not the intention of this podcast. Um, it is essentially just speaking my truth. Um, especially how it's impacted my membership today and what I, I, I believe and, wh- and who I f- uh, feel I am today. Um, because one thing is when, when you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you kind of have, <clears throat> you can either have a positive experience or you can have a negative one. Uh, and for many people, you know, it's, it's subjective to what they're exposed to. Um, you know, and, and how they experience that part of the religion. So for me, um, this is where kind of the direction of, of my experience is a little different. So if you're unfamiliar with the church, um, uh, obviously you can go online, you can research whatever you want. Um, for me, I'll just kind of stick to kind of the most basic elements of it, which are that the church teaches these 13 principles, um, uh, which we call the articles of faith or basically the tenets of, of what we believe and how people should live their lives. If you've never read them, um, I'll just kind of go through them now so you can at least understand uh, how people within this faith um, behave. So the first one is that we believe in God being the eternal Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. We do believe in the, in, <clears throat> in the three uh, we also believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind will be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. We believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are first, faith in, Jesus, in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth is the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, five, we believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administering the ordinances thereof. We believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church, namely apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. We believe in the gift of tongues, prophecy, revelation, visions, healing, interpretation of tongues, and so forth. We believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it has been translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. We believe that God has revealed all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We believe in the literal gathering of Israel and in the restoration of the ten tribes that Zion or the new uh, Jerusalem will be built upon the American continent, that Christ will reign personally upon the earth, and that the earth will be renewed and and receive its periodical um, glory. We claim the privilege of worshiping Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all men the same privilege. Let them worship how they how they will, where, and what they may. We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates, and obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. And lastly, we believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and in doing good to all men. Indeed, we may say that we may follow the admonition of Paul, where, where we believe all things, we hope all things, we have endured all things, and hope to be able to endure all things. If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. So these are the 13 articles of faith, um, the main tenets of what you know members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believe. These, these principles actually lay the, fa- the basic foundation 
of what membership in the church is like. <clears throat> and sure, we've all heard of the other stuff, right? Like, why are why why don't why do Mormons not drink coffee, but then they do drink caffeinated soda pop, or why do they avoid engaging in like premarital sex and stuff like that? Um, these are interesting talking points for sure, uh, but that is not the focus of this podcast. Uh, if those are things that you want to talk to somebody about. Um, you know, feel free to reach out to missionaries or whoever you may know that's of this faith and and feel free to ask them. Um, But for the purposes of this podcast, that's just what it is. And so in my experience, so for many undocumented Latter-day Saints, these articles of faith, as they are called in the church, serve to keep people from getting into trouble. And if you're undocumented, it helps you tremendously because it helps to prevent you from standing out in negative ways. Uh, it prevents you from, um, you know, getting in trouble with the law. It prevents you from, you know, meeting, meeting people who might question your legalist, legal status. <clears throat> so in, in my personal opinion, um, when you're an undocumented, undocumented member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, these points help to keep people, like they kind of act as a distraction in a way to get people to not question uh, who you are. Uh, and so depending on whether or not that's important to you, you know, that's, that's subjective and, you know, that's up to the individual. But for me, that's what, that's what I think. And so when I turned 18, uh, the total weight of the immigration law system now rested on me, right? I could no longer argue that it was my parents' fault for having brought me into the United States because at 18, I was directly and wholly responsible for my actions. And every day that I remained in this country after 18 years of age meant that there was a punishment for my choice to stay. So you see, the 12th article of faith states that we believe in honoring, obeying, and sustaining the law. And this was really hard for me. This was a challenge for me because Every day that I remained in this country as an undocumented person meant that I was going against this principle of faith. And by my interpretation of it, I was going against the, church, uh, the church's teaching. It was, I, I, I often found myself feeling alone. It was hard. Because when these emotions and feelings of like contradiction overcame me, and thoughts of like suicide, as I mentioned in a previous uh, podcast, entered my mind, I would go to my church leaders you know, for their counsel and support. And after listening to how I I felt about my situation, they would often say, quote, pray about it and God will help, unquote. Or they would say, quote, I don't know how to help you, unquote. So I felt stuck because one thing is that I, I find tremendous value in the church's teachings for me individually and for me as, uh, you know, a household figure. But there's little, in my personal experience, little experience or a little training uh, for leaders regarding this subject. Um, because if I'm in my in my experience, if I if I went to my leader asking for help and support only to find out that he's telling me that there's nothing he can do for me. Well, then the question is, well, then why am I even here? Why? Why do I keep doing this? Right. And so that's kind of the challenge that exists for for myself, and I'm sure there's plenty of Latter-day Saint undocumented individuals and probably, you know, other individuals outside of the Latter-day Saint faith who might feel similarly, who go to their leaders asking for help only to find that they can't provide the help that they need. And as I mentioned in a previous post, 
uh, podcast, which was, you know, going to seek professional help also, you know, was limited because it's hard to find individuals who have gone through this unique experience uh, and understand the intricacies of it and can provide the, the, the remedy, the right solution to what you're feeling in the moment. <clears throat> and so, so when, like I said, when I turned 18 um, and when I found out that I was undocumented when I was in high school, I realized that I couldn't go off to college. And if, again, if you're familiar with the Latter-day Saint faith, you'll know that at 18, um, young men have uh, priesthood authority. And within this priesthood authority, there's this, <clears throat> there's this kind of requirement that uh, they are to serve a two-year Latter-day Saint mission. So during this time for me of my internal turmoil, I was unsure about going or not. Uh, I had no money, nor was I, nor did I feel like I was spiritually prepared to embark on this type of a journey. I mean, how 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 could I teach people about Christ when I knew little about Him myself? You know, at the time, that's kind of how I felt. And similarly, at the same time, uh, my sixteen-year-old sister, you know, we we found out that she was diagnosed with cancer. She she had ALL leukemia. And this information shocked my family to the core because we didn't know how we were going to finance a mission if I decided to go. And then now having to find out that my sister had cancer meant that we now, being undocumented, had to figure out how do we cover the high medical costs that would accompany my sister's chemos, her surgeries, and her hospital visits. You know, because one thing when you're an undocumented person is that more often than not, and I'm probably going to say and this is going out on a limb here. Again, I'm not basing it on any type of actual facts, but this is my personal interpretation is that probably 90% of the undocumented community have no life insurance or very little life insurance or, or, uh, or family health savings to, to rely on. I mean, basically, you're on your own if you ever found yourself in this type of a position being undocumented. And this was exactly the position we were in. So in, in this time of, of trying to understand who I am, trying to figure out my identity, what do I want to be, who do I want to become, um, what do I believe in, what do I not believe in, you know, I got a, a big curveball thrown at me when my sister got diagnosed with cancer. Because again, I didn't know how to react. I didn't know what I was going to think. I didn't know how I was going to feel. I didn't know how I was going to um, interpret the situation. How are my parents going to behave towards us sorry if you can hear a train in the background um <laughs> my apologies my apologies here uh, i'll try to try to edit this out but if you can still hear it my apologies um but yeah like i'm saying going through this experience is very tough um because there's no money i mean it's already hard enough being undocumented and then now you're adding this notion that somebody's sick and they're dying changes everything so I realized in this moment where I was trying to figure out what do I do with my life? Again, I couldn't go to college. I had no money. I had no I, I could get a job under the table or whatnot, but that's not what I wanted for myself. I always aspired for bigger and better things. And so in this time of my life where I was trying to figure out what do I do? How do I make the right choice for me? Um, you know, one of the things that just stood out to me was, you know, in our in our faith, we we teach people to know how to know truth. So we encourage people to pray to know whether or not the church is true for them 
just as, um, you know, James admonishes in the New Testament, I, I believe it's James chapter one, verses five and six, um, uh, where we are adm- admonished to pray to know truth, right? And so I prayed to know what was true for me and how what I needed to do to support my family during this trial, because if it meant if I felt inspired to stay, you know, how can I get a job to help support them? Or if it meant if I was supposed to go on, on a mission, like, how would I finance that? What what would I do to go? Um, and basically, I just put that up in, in God's hands, right? Um, again, I had no preparation for anything. I was just kind of flying by the seat of my pants. And so uh, I received an answer uh, to embark on a two-year LDS mission. And it kind of came about in a really unique way, a way that I wasn't prepared for. Uh, to make a long story short... My mom knew an acquaintance who communicated to a wealthy person who is a devout member of the LDS faith who's, who connected us and basically said, hey, I know your family's going through this really tough time where your sister has cancer, but if you're willing to kind of give two years of your life to you know, serve God, bring people closer to Christ and that sort of thing, um, we'll finance your mission. We'll take care of 100% of it. You don't have to worry about your family or anything like that. If you go, your family will be will be safe. And again, I didn't have any money. I didn't have nothing in my life other than this opportunity where somebody's saying, hey, if you go, we got you covered for two years. And so my 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 logic told me, I mean, it made sense because again, I had no money for school. I had no job, nor could I legally get one. And now I had somebody who offered to help finance my mission if I decided to go. So I, it made sense after considering these things to do that. And so I went and um, I was asked to learn American Sign Language uh, and to serve the people of Anaheim, California. And so I left for two years. And during those two years, I was able to connect and meet uh, both, you know, the, uh, the English speaking community, the Spanish speaking community, as well as the deaf and the hard of hearing community. And I realized through this experience, you know, a lot more about myself. One of the interesting things about this experience for me was I was presented in several uh, instances where the parents were immigrants, Central America, South America, Mexico, and they only spoke Spanish. And yet they had deaf children or family members who uh, were attending school here in the U.S. And so they were raised and taught, you know, American Sign Language. And for many, um, for many deaf and hard of hearing individuals, more specifically like the deaf ones, um, you know, the English language is something that, you know, takes time to master. And so for many of these individuals, you know, they had difficulties in reading and writing in English. So I'd be presented in situations where the parents only spoke Spanish, the deaf person only spoke, well, I only use sign language, ASL, American Sign Language. And my companions, the, the guy that uh, was my, my uh, uh, helper on this missionary experience, uh, he only spoke English and American Sign Language. So when we were in these situations where the parents only spoke Spanish, I, was, I realized and I had learned in this experience, through this experience that I could speak in Spanish, think in English, and then sign all at the same time. So it was through this experience of going on a mission that, you know, I learned a lot about myself. I met a lot of terrific people, both inside and outside of the faith. 
I made friends with people that I still remain to uh, friends with to this day. However, not everything is smooth, was smooth sailing. I had some missionary companions who were highly racist. And since you don't get to pick your companions, you're stuck with them until there is a next change in the companionship. Uh, and usually that, uh, usually most changes last six weeks or companionships last six weeks before any type of change can be introduced. So for six weeks, you're stuck with that person. And sometimes it could be longer than six weeks. And so in the cases where I was with, um, you know, racist people, you know, I experienced a lot of discrimination. You know, I had missionaries that would say things to me like, <clears throat> say things to me because I was Mexican. Uh, they would say things like, oh, we're going to, you know, I'm going to write my family to write tell immigration to come get you your family because your guys are probably illegal. Uh, in one particular case, uh, I had a missionary from Texas who would say stu- stupid stuff to me uh, like, <laughs> quote, he would say, you know what's worth more than a Mexican? My dog, unquote. And I couldn't understand how this guy could say these types of things to me, especially behind closed doors. And then he would go out to profess, you know, that we're all brothers and sisters. It just didn't make sense to me. Because outwardly, you know, I kept these things bottled up and acted as if they didn't phase me. But inwardly, I felt like I was going to jump, jump off a cliff. The worst part of all this was that while I was bottling up these things that were happening to me, all I could think about was my sister back home and whether or not she was okay and if she was still alive. Sometimes my family would go weeks without writing me or updating me about her status. During these periods, uh, my anxiety would just be through the roof. Uh, I later found out when I got home that during these periods where my family did not write or call, it was because my sister was on the brink of death. This was very hard for me. Um, because as a missionary, like you're definitely focused on trying to help bring people to closer to Christ, but you know, that you have moments and you're a human being when you think about how are things back home. And for me, it was really hard. Uh, I actually, because of just the challenge of the experience, you know, I had to go see professionals. Um, I went and was getting professional help for, for my emotional, uh, well-being. Um, I was having, bodily reactions to the, the 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 stress of 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 everything and um and this was a hard period of my life and what's interesting is even to this day I still haven't fully reconciled the fact that my sister almost died from cancer um I can't watch movies like The Fault in Our Stars or um uh there's a movie on um uh, Amazon Prime, I think it's called Loving Kennedy or Saving Kennedy, something like that. I, I can't watch these types of movies because it reminds me of how close my sister was to cancer. And it still affects me. Uh, I didn't, it, it, it's, it's just something that I haven't fully um, grieved. And my sister's okay. Uh, she, she hasn't passed away or anything like that. And, but those feelings are still there. And so at the end of my two-year mission, uh, when, I, uh, when it was time to go home, I came home to nothing. I had no job waiting for me. I had no savings. My parents had no money to help me get back on my feet because of the hospital expenses they had to cover. The only thing I had when I came home were the things that I had put into storage. It was all of my personal memorabilia. But unfortunately... 
most of my items, most of those things I had put away were damaged from a rainstorm that had happened during my two years away from home. And then the rest of the stuff that wasn't damaged had been taken by someone close to me because they had lost a lot of weight and then thought that it would be okay to take my clothes and my things as a better alternative than for them to go buy their own. And so when I say that I came home to nothing, I literally came home to nothing. And then to make things worse, the church did not provide a post-mission course or training for undocumented missionaries, or nor did they provide any kind of missionary get-together for, um, for undocumented immigrants who have served a mission. There was none of that. So, and if there's anything you, you know, you can understand is like when a return missionary from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints comes home for outsiders, you know, they may seem a little weird when they get back home. They don't like the same things they used to, you know, they may dress differently. They may speak differently. They may talk about experiences that are, that, you know, are difficult to connect or or understand completely. You know, we just come home a little weird. And so for me, when I came home, uh, I felt used. And I felt betrayed by the very institution that I just gave two years of my life to. Because in my mind, I wondered, how can you demand 18-year-old young men to sacrifice so much and then give them nothing when they return home other than a piece of paper that says you completed a mission honorably and a plaque with your picture on it? This question bothered me for the longest time. And I'm not going to lie, I'm, you know, I've, I, th- I think I'm in a good place now with, answer, with my answer to that question. But the reality is, it's still something I think about, you know, because my experience as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, has been complicated at best. I'm not saying that like, I want to leave or that it should be condemned, although some of you <laughs> who listen to this might have anti-Latter-day Saint views you know, might feel like it should be, uh, and that's your prerogative, totally your your choice. But to me, I feel like there needs to be some change organizationally that educates church leaders on the intricacies of church membership as an undocumented person. You know, I feel that there needs to be a little bit of ownership in helping missionaries reintroduce themselves to their environments after they come home. Because the worst feeling I've ever experienced, or actually one of the worst feelings I've ever experienced in my life, was coming home to nothing and then feeling like I got kicked to the kicked to the curb once I was released. You know, it kind of reminds me of like when you hear um, those stories of like when a, a captive animal gets reintroduced into the wild. You know, there's a lot of fear and concern whether or not they'll be able to survive after uh, they're they're out there on their own. And that's kind of how I felt. Is I felt like a captive lion reintroduced into the wild, don't know how to hunt, don't know how to kill. And I got to learn these things all on my own. And so, again, I'm not saying that this podcast is meant to bash the church or anything like that. But I just want to bring some awareness to the realities that, like, there are tons of undocumented individuals who have served the church. And then when you come home to nothing... It, it sucks. It really does. 
and so I hope that this podcast, more than anything, um, creates kind of a dialogue of how can we reintroduce the undocumented youth into our communities in ways that fosters development, creativity, growth. Because at the end of the day, we are so embedded into our communities. We're embedded into the fabric of the American society that to kick us to the curb is a great disservice to the wonderfulness that this this country is. And more specifically, again, bringing it to like the religious context, how can we provide better avenues of discussion and inclusion for these types of individuals, especially for those who have gone and, you know, sacrificed in the name of, of pros- uh, proselyting and um, sharing the good word. I hope that this presents an interesting dialogue, an interesting perspective. Um, and I would ask this question of you guys, my listeners, which is what can you do to reach out to somebody who is maybe needing, you know, that extra hand? How, how can you help somebody feel included in your environment, both inside and outside of a religious context? Because I do think it's important for us to, to support one another. Um, and it starts with discussions like these and being honest and being true to what people experience. Again, I hope this podcast um, has generated some thoughts for you. Please feel free to, to connect with this podcast on social media, on, uh, through the email that I provided previously. If, uh, if you don't have it or if this is your first time listening, the email, if you'd like to engage, is thedreamerdiary21 at gmail.com. And uh, I'll respond to you. And, um, you know, please feel free to share your thoughts and, and maybe we could connect on a podcast uh, with you. So I hope this is... Um, I hope you're all safe and I hope you're all doing well and I'll get you on the next one.